And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're reading Parenthesis by Elodie Durand. So Maggie, this is your first time reading this book. For me, this is one of the books that we read in my YA lit class, even though it's not really a YA novel. It's a graphic novel. And I'm curious to know what your first impressions are. I thought it was really powerful. It was really moving. For me, it was a, a little bit hard to read. I've spent a lot of my life in and out of neurologist office is. And while I'm very lucky that I haven't had an experience as traumatic as our author has, and I would never want to compare, I have had similar lead up experiences, shall we say, as people have been trying to figure out what is happening with my migraines for my entire life. But the art was really beautiful. I kept looking at this book and being like, I wish I could curate this as a show which is a very probably singular experience. But the art tells a lot of the story here. And obviously that's true for many graphic novels, but I have a hard time connecting with graphic novels. I think sometimes because my brain sort of works in a words or images way, and I have a hard time pulling those things together. But in this one, the art does so much of the work that I had a way easier time connecting all of the dots, so to speak. And I think that one of the messages that really stayed with me here is I think about understanding people who have been through life altering and in some ways personality changing experiences and how to be a better ally to those people in your life. The author is talking about her own experience, but she also talks a lot about her relationships with her family. And there's points in this book where she pushes back a lot against how they think about and interpret things. And one of the last things that she leaves you with as a reader is that she doesn't feel like her life is defined by this experience anymore because her epilepsy went away in the early 2000s. But because her parents knew her sort of before everything happened, they still sort of see the difference. But for her, it's just this is who she is now. This is her life experience. This is her personality. And so it really made me think about the ways in which I think we perceive other people and have an understanding of other people that's subjective and based on our own experiences. But when somebody else's life shifts dramatically, it's not, it's easy, I think, from the outside to do the before and after comparison, but that's not always the way, that's often not how people are actually thinking about their lives and their experiences. It's all just one metamorphosis. Yeah, I had thought about when I picked up this novel again yesterday, I thought about giving Maggie a trigger warning, and maybe I'll just give one for all of you listeners here. So this does deal with physical and mental illness, and particularly the effects of epilepsy and also memory loss. And it is difficult to read. It was difficult for me, even as a person who has never dealt with any of these illnesses, 
it, it was difficult for me as somebody who just knows people who have dementia or Alzheimer's because some of the experiences are really similar. And as Maggie pointed out, it is based off of Elodie's real life. She changes some names, but it's it's mostly autobiogra- autobiographical. And it starts off as essentially a letter to her mom. And Maggie pointed out to the importance of the art. So for me, I think part of the reason that this art works so well is because the novel, the graphic novel is very transparent that this is the narrator's way of coping and way of expressing herself because she doesn't have the words to express what she's feeling. Yeah, the way that she sort of shows her her illness, her epilepsy, her tumor, which they thought was cancer and turned out to not be cancerous, but they didn't find out to like way after the fact that that was the case. As a giant black head that she sits in the mouth of, and depending on what's happening in the story, it's eating her alive, or sometimes she's crawling out of it. And at the end, when everything has been resolved, and she has this normal EKG, and she shuts its mouth while she's standing on the outside of it, it was like a very powerfully emotional experience. And the way that everything is so tied together here is, I don't know, it's very intimate. I don't think I've ever read a memoir that I felt so intimately connected to. And maybe it's because there's a little bit of a Venn diagram of shared experiences, but I really think it's just because as Harmony mentioned, the start. this is a letter to the author's mother talking about from her perspective, what this whole experience was like, especially knowing that she doesn't actually remember 75, 80, 90% of it and how she thinks about and deals with a gap in her life that takes up most of her early 20s. And there's just something about the way she's crafted all of this that feels like a very inside look into that experience, even though I can't personally relate to having memory loss myself. The way that she uses the negative space in the novel to show that void of time and how that void takes up its own space but isn't something that you can parse through is really 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 powerful yeah she's definitely a talented artist to give listeners kind of a summary in case you haven't read it so we start off in time time in this novel is really weird there's a lot of jump backs and flash forwards but i it's it's a part of the narrator's experience because she's lost so much time to memory loss but we start off with her being uh, about 25 and moving out of her parents house and we see her post college being successful she's she works as an artist she's painting a mural at a hospital and then we see these signs from this time when her life is is quote unquote normal where she gets these spells and then we see her she she's just graduated right but now she has to be dependent on her parents again and that was a theme that really stood out to me you know I'm 27 Maggie's 26 so this is and we just had we just had kind of we lost some time due to COVID, even if we still had to work, even if we still had to go to grad school, even if we're still doing things, it does sort of feel like this big gap of lost time, not in the same way as this novel. But that was something that I resonated with this idea of independence and then this forced helplessness that comes when, you know, you're sick and you can't do everything on your own and 
you need other people to help you piece together your own life. Throughout the novel, we see her asking her mom, her dad, her sister, what happened because she can't rely on her own memory. And that was, oh, it was just, it, it really struck me. I, uh, the idea of how scary it must be to not be able to rely on yourself, especially when you finally reached independence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's a total reliance. She she talks about how she's aware that there was a point in her life when she was really, really sick. She couldn't even stay awake for two hours because of a, a multitude of side effects of, of her medication for epilepsy and a treatment for what, again, they thought was cancer. It turned out many years later not to be, but was a tumor that was causing this epilepsy. She was sleeping constantly. And not only was she losing her memory, but she was experiencing other side effects too she couldn't she couldn't remember the alphabet she couldn't remember how to do subtraction that we as neurotypical people think of as being very very basic and very easy and very simple her ability to read was sort of on the rocks so it was like this total destabilization of self and she remembers that she was kind of just following her mother around the house from place to place and she would have these moments of lucidity every once in a while where she would pop in and she would see her mother peeling potatoes and she would have a potato and a potato peeler in one hand but she couldn't even get through one and just that moment of how can I not know how to peel I guess I don't know how to peel a potato anymore and her mother talking to her later and filling in those gaps and saying you know, we were always together. We, we, you, you were, you were often with me, but even when you wanted to help, it just, it, it couldn't happen, you know? And how there's this moment right after that, where she's talking about this moment of lucidity, where they're discussing an, an, an incident where Elodie didn't ask her mother for anything. And one day she almost randomly asked her mother to go visit her sister And so her mother let her go. She wanted to go by herself, but her mom obviously followed her. And she found her alone and disoriented and didn't know who her mother was or or what was happening. And I think that it's one of the scary things about this novel that the author really, I think, communicates is what it means to feel so divorced from your sense of self that things that you've learned that you never thought that you could unknow that our basic parts of you suddenly go away. And I think that for me, one of the interesting things about this graphic novel is a reminder that we do very much come and in, come into the world very blank slates. There is not that much that is innate about the way that we understand ourselves or view ourselves or relate to other human beings. And that there's a lot, I think, there's a lot of value in everything that we've learned and known and done, even when we don't remember learning and knowing and doing it for the first time. And forgetting all of those things is a really destabilizing experience. At least that was part of what I got from from the book. That's really interesting. (laughs) This idea of having value... I, I kind of made a face when Maggie was like, we don't cut, we come into the world as blank slates. Cause I was like, well, do we, is that a debate? Because there's talk of genetics shaping large parts of our personality, but you're right in that every, her personality ha- holds value for the community, for her very tight knit family community. And they're the ones that kind of help piece her back together when she can't identify self they're the ones telling her who she is which as we've already talked about is an incredibly scary feeling right to be told who you are 
and to have to depend on that. So I have a lot of thoughts here, I guess. I think to go to go let's start let's start here to go back to Maggie's original point from a, a few minutes ago about how this novel depicts a very insider an insider perspective right where we we get to be right in her head I feel like part of that is important because we see it on page 98 she talks a little bit about how to the outside world, she she appears fine, right? She's not able to communicate to anyone except for her very close family who only knows because they've spent so much time with her about her spells, but she's not able to communicate to her friends what's going on. She appears physically healthy and her personality, for the most part, this isn't true for, for all parts of the illness, but her personality is mostly intact, even though she herself isn't present. And then I guess another thing I want to expand upon that Maggie's kind of drawn out for me in terms of this reliance and in terms of having other people kind of hold yourself, right? They're the ones keeping everything that she's learned, everything that she is alive. I think for me, it really puts into, it, it puts into perspective this idea of community and when it's okay to be reliant on your community. And I think not to get too political <laughs> or expand too much. But I think as an American reading this, part of, it, I think it's extra scary because we, we focus so much on individual identity, right? And individual self and autonomy in some ways. So this idea of being completely reliant is, is super scary, but it's also kind of beautiful. And we see this through the fact that this is a letter, right? This is a letter to her community thanking her for, helping her stand on her two feet again, for keeping herself alive, for helping her with these mundane things, but also, as Maggie pointed out, with this with this, this idea of who she is and being able to share that with her. I think in a way that in itself is kind of beautiful, like being able to trust people enough, being able to live in a world where you can trust others enough to help keep that alive for you, where you can, where you can be that dependent because some of us are and we can't help it, right? I think that's everything I want to say and expand upon. But Maggie might say something else and I might want to expand upon it more. <laughs> yeah, that was something that I kept thinking about in this novel was the amount of trust in other people to be able to, and not even to be able, she didn't have a choice, right? But to have to put so much of yourself in somebody else's hands and also trust that those people wouldn't grow to resent you it doesn't the novel doesn't talk about this a ton but it does talk a little bit about the ways in which that this was also a family trauma it completely changed everybody's lives in this in this little community in this little family community how her parents had to completely reshape their work lives her sister had her first child while all of this was happening which was i'm sure a very very bittersweet and difficult experience for everybody involved too I think as well, this is also a book about accepting a lot of the fact that this happened for the first time, because part of that scene that Harmony brought up, which I think is a really important scene in the novel, also, though, has to do with the fact that part of the reason that the author couldn't talk about it and explain to other people in her life what was happening was because she couldn't accept it for herself. And she was having a really hard time with 
knowing that she was sick all of a sudden and that it was it was changing and re-terraforming the way that she was interacting with the world and with herself and with others in her life for the first time. And that was something for me that was really interesting because as somebody who's chronically ill, I've been sick my whole life. And so it was interesting for me to get the perspective of somebody who, I mean, they don't know, they talk about in, in the novel how they don't know sort of when the epilepsy sort of started, but whose symptoms started in, to affect her life in a really big, noticeable, changing way when she was already an adult, right? And how scary that experience must be versus somebody like me who, yeah, my chronic illnesses are really fucking annoying. And I spend a lot of time in and out of doctor's offices and neurologist offices and hospitals too, especially when I was younger, luckily not quite so much now. But that's always been my life. And that's always been my status quo. And so the shift to have that suddenly be your whole life especially paired with the memory loss. She talks about the ways in which she feels like there's certain points in her life where during that experience, because she doesn't remember very much about her life before, it feels like the hospital is her whole life and she's just there constantly. And while she's really sick because she's having trouble kind of comprehending what's happening on an emotional and mental level, she doesn't really trust her healthcare providers and it takes her a really, really long time to build up a good relationship with her neurologist who she, I think, sort of hints at, implies that she feels like he's not really getting her. She says that she she says that she hated his smile for a really long time. And it wasn't until sort of after a lot of things had changed that she was able to appreciate that and appreciate him more. I don't remember where I started. I'm sorry. But that, but that was a really interesting perspective. And I think also a really important perspective too, because I think a lot of the times we think of experiences with disability as being lifelong things that you've always been dealing with. But for a lot of people, that's not true. And things can happen and things can come. And it doesn't necessarily have to be some big life-changing accident either. You know, sometimes stuff just happens. Sometimes you can experience disability like our author does, for only a certain period of your life and how does that reshape your your life and your personality and your existence yeah I want to go back to the doctor's point and kind of talk this out with you Maggie because as we've talked about on the podcast before and as tons and tons of studies have pointed out there is a big issue with doctors dealing with women's health care issues and this isn't a woman's health care issue but this is a woman being treated by by the healthcare system. And this doesn't take place in America. So presumably they have a better healthcare system. But in addition to not in addition to the the somewhat implied undeserved vitriol that she feels for her ne- neurologist, there's, there's, I, I don't know, it was hard for me to parse out what was and wasn't fair in her emotions. And that's not for us to do. But it was interesting to me because there's a part where she's she's being prescribed a lot of drugs and the drugs actually, according to her mom, don't help her, but they make her really tired and her doctor is completely unconcerned with her fatigue, but also doesn't tell her that her fatigue is okay. And there's also a scene, let me pull it up, where there's all of, she goes and gets an MRI and there's all of these neurologists and they're all men. They're all old white men. Um, 
they're all old white men and they're sitting on top of her tumor when they found it just kind of talking about it almost a little bit callously in all of this doctory medical jargon and that image just it's not communicated in words so it's hard to interpret but it, it's these three old white men talking on top of a tumor tumor all of this jargon and it really it, it showcases i think this detachment that she feels from the medical professionals or that she feels that they have for her and her personhood and kind of showcases maybe this unfair treatment. And maybe it's not even unfair. Maybe it's just that the doctors aren't seeing her as a person and attending to her personal needs and well-being. And so I just kind of wanted to know more about what your take on her feelings and her depictions of doctors within this book is. Yeah, that was something that really stood out to me because because you're reading this and you're like, how much of this, how much of this is fucked up medical practice, you know, or how much of this do we not see as a reader as really genuinely being the only option giving where medicine was at the time in order to make sure that she wasn't having seizures constantly. That I think that the scene that you're talking about takes place from page 60 to 63. It starts out with the three doctors standing on her head, looking over her her seizure and then it ends with this really intense cut scene of her brain where they're all standing on her brain just talking about precedent and microsurgery and all of these things but I do think though that we do see a discountment of her quality of life at the very least because the thing about the sleeping especially is that it was one of the biggest factors in her not being able to feel independent and get up and do things and participate in her own life because she was so tired all of the time and she was sleeping so much. And I think to me, the scene that actually expounds all of that is the scene where they do the biopsy and her and her whole family are standing in the smoking lounge because she refuses to be in bed any longer. And the doctor comes up and says what kind of tumor it is. And the doctor assumed that they wouldn't, that she wouldn't know or wouldn't remember that that specific kind of tumor was cancerous. But she knew. So this doctor broke extremely terrifying news to this woman in a really blase way because he assumed that she wouldn't know, understand, be able to comprehend, remember really what was actually happening. And I think to me, that was just the, the crux of it is that it felt from from at least reading her perspective and what I got from this was this feeling of she they they aren't seeing her as a full person they're seeing her just as this illness and as long as the major symptoms of this illness are being taken care of then everything else is fair game and any everything else is fine and I don't know that much about epilepsy personally or brain tumors they're both obviously very serious things and I know that long-term epilepsy can be very damaging to your brain. But I think that this idea that when you have a really, a disease that could be life-threatening, that has a lot of side effects, that changes your life so much, that your quality of life ceases to matter as long as it's not going to kill you, is kind of pervasive, I think, through pop culture and at least kind of through my experiences just seeing how doctors rock and roll. And I think that that's wrong. And I think that we we see all the reasons why that's wrong here. Because you you can only sit here and think while reading her story, if some of her medications had changed sooner, would 
this story have played out a little bit differently for her, right? Even the fact that after she has this procedure that takes care of the tumor, she has a really, really rare and really terrible side effect. Her mom notices that she calls the doctor and the doctor says, well, it's only been three months and you can't see the side effect until six months. So it goes untreated for another three months and then everybody's like, wah! And it's like, as soon as they treat it, she feels a lot better and life goes back to normal really fast, right? So I don't know. I feel like from my perspective, there's this weird tension between the fact that doctors are also people and are largely doing the best they can with the set of data and the information that they have. And we can't expect them to be omniscient with the fact that patient caring, listening and understanding to your patients is really important. And it feels like there's points in this book where even outside of some of the brain fog things that are happening here, Elodie wasn't being listened to. I mean, even right up until the very end. At the very end, Elodie decides herself to start stepping down her epilepsy medication without her doctor knowing. And it just kind of all works out, which can be a dangerous thing to do. I don't necessarily, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that everybody should be going out and messing with their own medications. That's, uh, that can be really dangerous. But I do think it goes to show that knowing yourself and knowing your body and being able to advocate for yourself is can be really, really, really difficult. And sometimes even when you do advocate for yourself and knowing something's different, it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's going to listen to you. I'm sorry, that felt like a little nonsensical, but there is <laughs> that was actually a really hard part of this novel for me to read for reasons much different than the situation laid out in the novel. I think that's very fair. Just a quick note. So Elodie is the author of this book, but her character is named Judith. And I'm pointing that out just because, I don't know, she fictionalized it for a reason. So maybe there's some, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is, but her character is named Judith. In terms of the autonomy thing and advocating for yourself, so I think not to beat a dead horse, but part of what made that difficult for me to read, right, is I always tell my students, you're your own best advocate. That's part of my mission is to make people feel autonomous, make them, help them, help them understand what they want and what they, the ways that they work best and the ways to help them speak up for themselves. But in Judith's situation, she she can't she she has to bring people with her early on to doctor's visits because she can't remember what the doctor is saying and she has to be dependent on other people to advocate for her or at least with her and I guess why this sticks out so much to me is because right now outside of this book not to not to bring us too far away, but what I've I've been focusing on and part of the things that I'm discovering through this podcast is the importance of community and trying to figure out how we blend that with autonomy. In some ways, it's kind of beautiful that she is able to do this, that she is able to bring that community with her, that they are able to advocate with her. And in some ways, it's scary, but sometimes that's just life, right? Sometimes we can't do the thing. And some of us are stuck with kind of crappy communities who can't communicate for us. So I guess focusing on building that in our own lives, if we can, and trying to make that a part of our larger system where they have, they do have people and in, in some hospital systems that will help you advocate for yourself is really important. <laughs> and I think that this book does show a lot of her family advocating with her mom does notice lots of changes and she does push back against the doctors and she is trying to figure things out. And it does, I think, very much take take the whole team there, you know? But I think that sometimes 
at least in my life, in my experiences, and I think maybe a little bit what's portrayed here is when things get to a certain level of bad medically, I think that it can almost be hard to advocate because you, you're you so far out of your depth in what you know and understand about the body and experiences that you're forced to rely on your doctors. In my life, I know what's normal for me. I've been I've been living with my lung conditions. I've been living with my migraines for my entire existence. I know what's normal. I know how to advocate about all of that and talk about that and communicate all of that. I've spent the last 26 years of my existence doing that. But for example, when my grandma got really, really sick and had cancer, you know, that's not, that's not an experience that it, we all had to learn together how to advocate for her and how to understand because A, we were coming from outside of her body as her family trying to advocate and understand, but also we're all trained in Western culture to rely on medical professionals in situations like that, right? And we're all, I think, sort of out of our depth when you're a lay person, when something that intensely body changing happens to you. And so there is that tension, I think, between advocating, but also trying to learn, relying on professionals, but also trying to understand when the professional is maybe just a shitty professional. And I guess I just want to say that that experience is really, really complicated in a way in which that I think it, it maybe isn't always when you're living with a chronic illness that's maybe affected you for your entire life. And you've sort of learned to I don't know, exist with on the day to day and manage symptoms of versus a big catastrophic thing that's happened, where suddenly you're learning a lot really, really, really quickly. And how do you parse through all of this information plus plus a change, plus a changing life experience, plus somebody you love going through something really traumatic, and you're going through something really traumatic all simultaneously. That's really, that's really hard to navigate, you know? It definitely is. And thank you for sharing that experience. I definitely think that even though this is told from Judith's perspective, we see we see her family trying to navigate all of that too. So thank you for putting words to that because it 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 does kind of exist more on the fringes because we're dealing with her experience and her experience is different because she's so dependent on her family, but her family at the same time is trying to deal with this new scary thing that they also don't understand and trying to be the best support system and community that they can for their loved one. I don't know. This book is really sad to me and I don't know how to deal with it as somebody who has not, who does not have a lot of experience with these particular difficulties, I guess, for myself or for my loved ones. And it's nice that she gets over it, but that isn't the case for everyone. And it's just a hard, difficult thing that, I personally have trouble making sense of and trying. I'm always somebody who wants to find a solution, but trying to find a solution too. And maybe there just isn't one, but I, I do appreciate having this depiction because that helps, that helps society at large understand. It seems therapeutic for her. That's part of the reason why she makes all of these drawings. And also I like, having the depiction of what a community can do, right? And and also just understanding all of the difficulties, like the doctors not necessarily respecting her personhood in the way that they should. So I guess those are all things that I will take with me to try and find better solutions, but it is hard. It's hard when this is just a thing that you can't completely control or fix. Yeah, I think that, I think that what it comes down to is that 
advocacy is a lifelong journey. And I think it's especially a lifelong journey when it comes to your body and relation to medical issues. And my understanding and my experience from the outside looking in at the very least is that when a catastrophic thing happens that changes things very quickly, that learning curve is steep for advocacy. It's hard, you know, and it is a community wide effort in a community wide situation. And that support is so invaluable. And I'm so glad that the author was able to have that with her family and that Judith was was able to. The reason that I, I made the one to one is because she talks at the end about the fact that she published the book with her middle name. So I think I kind of assumed that Judith was just her actual first name. I didn't I didn't realize that certain things had been fictionalized. So my apologies there. I don't know if they have to be clear. I think that the other thing that really struck me, though, is that it's her taking back her story. This is a story about a time where she couldn't talk for herself and communicate for herself and advocate for herself in many ways. And she's taking back that story. But she's also, I think, owning who she is now. And not to harp on that point, but she is now defining who she is. You know, because she, she talks at the end, again, not to not to think about it too much, but she talks at the end about the fact that her parents and her sisters still see so many differences in her, right? And she talks about the fact that she decides whether or not she's disabled and she doesn't feel that way. And she, because her life is so normal and she has so few symptoms that to her feel like symptoms, that's what matters. She gets to decide that. And writing this book and sharing this story is turning that page, she said, not just for her, but when she was talking to her mom for her whole family, to understanding and acceptance and I think that that to me was a really empowering moment where at the end, even if there are still symptoms potentially or still things kind of floating around in the aether, she gets to decide and she gets to make those parameters and she gets to decide how she talks about this experience and how she defines herself. And she gets to live and experience her her own personality and her own existence in a new way. And I think that those parameters are really important and also really empowering to say that you get to you get to decide all of those things, you know, and I think that's also especially important because when a community trauma happens, the trauma to the community is also, I think, very, very real. And I don't want to discount that. But the person who was the most directly affected gets to make the calls about the parameters with which that experience is talked about at the very least in relation to that they get to make those decisions and I really appreciated that message yeah I think that's important too showing showing that there are still after effects and that she's been changed even if the situation even even though she doesn't have her illness in its in its worst iteration anymore yeah, I don't have a lot to say about that, but I I like that point you made, Maggie. I think that it is important to understand that, yes, she is the one telling her own story. She is the one that decides the ways that she's been changed. She is the one who gets to decide whether or not she's disabled. And this is just a beautiful book. If you haven't read it, just read it. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I'm still working through it. There's a lot. There's a lot here. And it's hard. It's hard to read because it's a hard situation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Bodies are hard. I think that the more I think about life and existence and uh, living in this world, that's just a thing that I come back to is that having a body and navigating that body and all of the things that can and do go wrong with it is really difficult. And it's a lot. 
Also, I'm sorry for relating my personal experiences with chronic illness so hard to this novel. I, I, I just want to make it clear that I don't have any personal direct experience with something this catastrophic in nature. It's just, I think, hard for me at this point in my life to read a novel about medical stuff that deals with neurological issues and not related back to my own experience. But like, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't trying to center myself here. So I, I apologize if it came off that way at any point. I will say, even though we probably don't do perfectly at this balance, I don't, Maggie and I try and be really transparent with you all about our own experiences, in part because that's how people process things, is is through their own experiences. And a lot of our experiences don't live up to the books we read, right? We're, we're reading to learn. In many ways, we are super privileged people. But I think if you're a chronically ill person reading this book and it reminds you of your experiences, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. And I don't think, I, I think my my read on what Maggie's doing makes sense to me, right? Because she's living, she's using her lived experience to better process this. And we're sorry if that comes across as insensitive. Let us know in emails. But I, I think that generally speaking, that's, it's okay to use your lived experience because that is a part of our processing method. That's all. <laughs> I think that it feels, I think that this is just one area where it's like, personally a sticky to figure out how to navigate i i feel like and i think it's partially because we don't often talk about sickness or illness or disability in any way in society at large it's something invisible that a lot of people who are able-bodied try to pretend happens over there when in reality lots of people live with chronic illness lots of people have invisible illnesses lots of people are just disabled and out here living their best life or have different abilities but because it's not talked about, I think that for me, this is one of those things where it's like my lived experience is the way that I grapple with it first and foremost, because I need more novels exactly like this one to be able to have a better frame of reference for other experiences so that I can, so that I don't have to just sit there and process with, okay, well, what have I experienced in this situation? There's a teeny tiny Venn diagram of similarity here. And this is just what I've got to go off of here, you know? So I, I hope that to me, it feels like it just emphasizes the fact that talking about illness and talking about different ability levels and, and what can happen to bodies is really, really important and really useful. And I want more novels that deal with all of this. I agree. I don't have any physical disabilities at this point in time that I know of or that I categorize as physical disabilities, but... As we'll talk about, I'm sure as we read more books that have to do with disability, I do have a relationship with disability in my own way, as does Maggie. And so I think part of our journey and part of why we're trying to talk about this is to is to get better frameworks, because personally, I don't have a lot of language for it. And even if it's something like this novel where I don't have a ton of personal experience with the things that Elodie is writing about, it still gives me language for it when I when I make a counter it. So that's important. Are, is there anything else we want to talk about related to parenthesis? No? I think we're done? Okay. Well, Maggie, what are you reading? I'm reading An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon. What are you reading? I am reading Most Ardently, and I'm going to look up the name right now. So 
A ninth grade student that I work with recommended this book to me. It's YA adjacent, I'll say, because the main character is 18 and a senior in high school, but she's going to community college. And it is a gay retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And some of the retellings I've been exposed to lately, whether they be through books or TVs or movie shows, haven't been my favorite. But this this is, it's a modern day retelling, but it's really, it's really good as a retelling. You have parallel scenes and it's it's surprising to me how seamlessly the author interweaves these these scenes that happened all the way in the 1800s into the modern day world and still makes them work and still makes them relevant and I just really like it so far so yes I'm really on a lesbian romance kick so this is my not quite YA contribution most ardently y'all should read it there's a great audiobook very nice very nice and then next week we have a fun episode And the week after that, we are reading Displacement by Kiko Hughes. So look forward to that, everybody. Harmony, is there anything else you want to say to the people? Hi, people. There's nothing else I want to say to you. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.